0: Well, here's what we're going to do today. We have been in John's Gospel since Christmas, (laughs) and um, we're going to continue in John's Gospel. And let me just kind of set the scene for us. Um, John's Gospel can be divided into three major sections. The first 12 chapters are called the Book of Signs because John kind of organizes his, his teaching around seven miracles that Jesus does. Okay, Then 13 through 17 is what is called the Farewell Discourse where Jesus is at the Last Supper and there's five chapters of, of pretty much all Jesus uh, teaching, praying, warning, okay? That's the, uh, the farewell discourse. And now we turn to chapter 18, which is the beginning of what you call the passion narrative. And passion is from a, a Latin word that means suffering. So this is his arrest and flogging and crucifixion. So we're gonna look at the first 14 verses of John chapter 18. And if you look in your bulletin, you'll see that some of the words are highlighted in yellow. I'll tell you what's going on there in just a minute. But um, let me pray, and then we're, we'll read the text. Lord, as we enter into the story of your suffering, um, Lord, I pray that you would just draw our hearts to you more to realize that you, the God of all glory, left your glory, became a man, and submitted to death, even death, on a cross. So, Lord, do your work amongst us and in us, and ultimately, Lord, draw us more to love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we go. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, the last five chapters, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had, advised, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, uh, when I study a passage, I always I'm thinking, how can I put this in an outline? Uh, and the purpose of an outline is to to organize the passage uh, in a way that that allows it to be taught in a systematic way and then it p- kind of puts a handle on it so you can take it home and unpack it. And there's all kinds of different outlines. There's like the alliteration. All of the points begin with the same letter. right? Or acronyms. All the points spell a word like tulip or cheese fries or something, you know. <laughs> um, then there's, there's just a thematic outline where you go, we're going to pull some themes out. And as I studied this, you know, I tried different things, and it's like there's so much in here. So here's what I'm going to do. I highlighted one word in each verse. And by focusing on those words as we go through Hopefully, we won't miss the big picture, and, and that will be a way to kind of capture the whole, the whole passage. So, that's what I've done. Let's begin uh, in John 18.1. Did these disappear? Oh, look at that. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the highlights didn't transfer for some reason, but that's why I have my little circle bobby thing here, right? All right. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was, and the the highlighted word is garden, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So they are up on the Temple Mount and they leave and go down the mount. And there's a, a stream called the Kidron River or the Kidron Brook. They cross over and they go up. The Mount of Olives. And there is, there's a lot of olive trees there. And there is a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. We've been there. Interesting word, garden. It was in a garden that Adam faced temptation. He failed and we were condemned. It's in a garden that Jesus is facing temptation. His temptation is to bail. And he fights that temptation to the point of sweating blood, we read in Luke's gospel. And he didn't give in, he went on and he rescued us from condemnation. It starts in a garden. And it ends in a garden. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew, I think I highlighted the word place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It's interesting. Jesus could have gone to a thousand different places in Jerusalem that night. But he chooses to purposely go to a place where Judas would know he's going. What's the point? The choice to go to this place was a deliberate choice to die. He could have bailed out, he could have hidden, but he went to a place where he knew the betrayer would lead the army. So so that's just a reminder. Jesus Christ's death was not some unfortunate accident where he got caught up in a political plot. No, it was the reason he came and he's making deliberate choices to die. Right? Number three, so Judas having Procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And the simple thought here is this garden. Which was a place of intimacy between Jesus and the Father. And a place where the disciples and Jesus went. It was a place of friendship and intimacy and love. And now it becomes a place of violence. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? John reminds us that Jesus already knows exactly what would happen. Now when... When do you think Jesus knew this would all happen? Well, I'm, I'm going to say in eternity past, right? I have a, a picture in my office. It's kind of a tacky picture, but it's uh, Jesus' father Joseph working in his wood shop, and little toddler Jesus. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, little toddler Jesus, because <laughs> <laughs> little has curls, you know, um, cute little baby Jesus, but he's like two, and he's stooping down, picking up some nails, some big spikes on the ground. So he's playing with the nails, and as the sun is coming through the window, it casts a shadow on the ground, and the shadow is in the shape of a cross, and the point is that Jesus even from a young age lived in the shadow of the coming cross right he came to die and John just reminds us he knows what's going to happen okay now 5 and 6 together so so he he asks the question whom do you seek He had proper grammar. I would have said, who do you seek? Whom do you seek, right? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Did you ever catch that before? That the whole army does a face plant? In the garden. Now, in the original Greek, the word he, I am he, is not there. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am, is what he says. Now, just to clarify, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am, and the whole army falls on their face. Now, what's, what's interesting is this. And by the way, does anybody have a, a new American standard? Do you? Does, does it, the word he, is it in italics? Yeah. So in the new American standard, when a word is in italics, what that means is, It was added for translation purposes, so it makes sense. But in the original, it's not there. I am. Why is that significant? That's God's name. When Moses goes to the burning bush uh, and God speaks, God says, deliver my people. And Moses goes, well, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. That's God's name, I am. Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you point the vowels and so forth. Um, But Jesus is not just saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, I am. And from him flows his last divine show of power. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and one day every knee will bow. And that's a little preview. I am, and they all fall down. Now again, he could have escaped here. Boy, this would have been a great time to abandon ship and, and get out of there because they're all on the ground. But he didn't. He stayed. Right? And from this point on, the lion becomes the lamb, and he submits to arrest and submits to the cross. We uh, we had a dog named Tucker, and uh, Tucker was a golden retriever, and just the most gentle dog. When we would bring the babies home from from the hospital, Tucker would roll on his back and let the babies grab his nose and pet him and ride him. Super gentle dog. Um, but one day, it was actually my dad was walking Tucker, and a, uh, I think it was a black lab came charging down a driveway, attacking Tucker, and Tucker grabbed it by the neck and threw it back and continued on his walk. <laughs> so, so there... The lamb became a lion, and now here, Jesus the lion is becoming the lamb. But this was his last show of power. Um, By the way, here in John 8, you know, if you run into a Jehovah's Witness, you're going to find out that the main difference you have is we believe that Jesus is God— they don't believe Jesus is God. And it, usually it ends up being an argument in John's gospel. John 1:1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they say, no, no, that should be translated. Uh, and the Word was a God. He was a powerful spiritual being, but he was. But, but then you take him to a passage like this, where Jesus again uses the term I am, he uses it several times. In John's gospel. And the question is um, see, now the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, no, he's not claiming to be God. The question is, did John want us to think Jesus was claiming to be God? Or maybe another way to, to put it is when Jesus said, I am, did his hearers think he was claiming to be God? So here he's arguing with the Jews. Uh, in John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus is saying, Abraham, 2,000 years ago, saw me in some way. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now again, I just pointed out how grammatically correct Jesus is. <laughs> Shouldn't this be before Abraham was, I was? Right? But, but he's, he's making the point, before Abraham was, not only was I, not only was I there, I am the I am that Abraham saw. Okay? Now, What did his listeners think he was saying? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It wasn't his time to die yet, but they certainly got the point that he was claiming to be the great I am. So let's keep going here. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, notice he clarifies. I just want to make sure we all know, who are you after? Jesus of Nazareth. And again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. What's he doing here? He's making them verbalize out loud that they're only after him, right? So he's the one who steps forward. He's protecting his disciples. Have you uh, ever seen the movie Spartacus? Who played Spartacus? Kirk Douglas with the dimple, right? Yeah. So Kirk Douglas, Spartacus leads a slave rebellion against Rome. And they, they finally at the end, the bunch of slaves are captured by Rome. And uh, they want to kill Spartacus. Problem is he didn't have a name tag, right? So they capture all these slaves and they said, Which one of you is Spartacus? And before Kirk Douglas can say, I'm Spartacus. Another slave raises his hand and says, I'm Spartacus. And another one says, I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. So they're all, they love him so much that they're they're willing to die for Spartacus. Jesus is kind of doing a reverse Spartacus here. Who is it you want? Who is it you want? You want Jesus of Nazareth? I am Jesus of Nazareth. Not these other people. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Again, he's protecting the lives of the disciples. Really, what we see here is Jesus physically acting out spiritual protection. He is physically protecting them from harm, which is a, it's a physical picture of some of the promises that we have been given spiritually. Which in, in uh, verse 9, it says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Okay, so John is saying he's fulfilling these words physically, but there are deeper spiritual promises of protection. For example, in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I, uh, God's will is that I don't lose anybody who is truly mine, In his prayer, we looked at last week, he says, Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. I protected them by your name, which you have given me, or I protected them by my name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's always singling out Judas, Jesus didn't lose his salvation. He never had it. Right? But here are promises of spiritual protection that none will be lost. And that is pictured by him saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Let these others go. Okay? Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, not his left ear, not his nose, but his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Okay? Now, what's what's going on here? You know, a lot of people want to write the Bible off. As a book full of myths and made-up stories. And yeah, really, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Come on. But one of the strongest arguments for the, what you call the historicity, the historical truthfulness of his death and resurrection, is the fact that the gospel writers name very specific names and places. And if this didn't happen, this could easily have all been discredited by the first hearers of the gospel and readers of the gospel. They were still alive when the gospels were circulated. So they could have said, wait a minute, let's check this out. And the, 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 the stories of Christ's death and resurrection are not vague myths that you know, Jesus was crucified on a hill far, far away in a land uh, beyond time. No. Jesus was arrested in a garden across from the Kidron River on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he was arrested, Peter took a sword, and he chopped off a guy's ear. Oh, what was his name? Malchus. Who was he? He was a servant of the high priest. Well, who was the high priest? Well, that was Caiaphas. And Caiaphas's father-in-law, who was really the secret high priest, his name was Annas. And Jesus stood trial before Annas, then Caiaphas, then the governor, Pontius Pilate. And then Pontius Pilate said, I'm going to send him to Herod. So King Herod judged him, but sent him back to Pilate, and they crucified him, and they put him in a tomb. Who owned the tomb? A guy named Joseph. Where was he from? Arimathea. What hill was he crucified on? The hill called Golgotha. Oh, and by the way, before, uh, before they crucified him, Pilate offered uh, to, to free Jesus, but they said, No, crucify him. We'll take a criminal. What was his name? Barabbas. You see, all these historical names and details, if this was just a made-up story, the first century readers would have said, no, this didn't happen in 33 AD in Jerusalem before Pontius, pa-. but the fact that those historical names are embedded in these gospel accounts and they weren't discredited in the first century is strong proof uh, that these are historical accuracies. In um, 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing the Corinthians, and it says then, uh, so, so, so Paul's saying, you know, after, after uh, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to all the apostles, and you know who else he appeared to? Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, Though some have fallen asleep, they're still alive. What's he saying? Check this out. The people who saw Jesus dead and then alive, they're still alive. You can go verify this. Go to Jerusalem and check this out. So, Melchis, irrelevant detail. Now I think it's one of these, these very important historical points that are included. All right, so Peter chops off a guy's ear. And he wasn't going for his ear. He was going for his head. And he just hit his ear, right? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? That the Father has given me. Now, now again, another deliberate choice to die. And Peter almost blows it by starting a war. Jesus says, put, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given You know, there's kind of a a movement that's gaining more and more steam within evangelical churches. And that is to look at the cross and say, whatever was going on on the cross, Jesus was not enduring the wrath of God. Okay? Okay? Well, what was he doing? And they, they say, well, there's different theories of the atonement. Well, what, what's your theory? Well, my theory of the atonement is Jesus was showing love. Or Jesus was defeating the satanic realm, Christus Victor uh, theory of the atonement. Uh, or, or he was setting an example. And, and while, while all those other things are true... They say what wasn't going on was Jesus enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. Why, why, why would they say that? That assumes there's a wrathful God. And we deserve, if he's dying for us, we deserve that wrath. They don't like the idea of a wrathful God. In fact, some have gone so far as to say, if you hold to what you call substitutionary atonement, where Jesus died in our place and endured the wrath of God, you're, you're promoting a view of divine child abuse. Okay? The choice of the word cup here is interesting. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What would a Jewish reader have thought about when they read the word cup? Their mind would have gone to Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Cup of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So God's wrath poured out on the nations, it's it's symbolized as a cup of wrath. If we go to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, it says this, And another angel a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand... He also will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Cup triggers the concept of a cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is saying Peter, put your sword away. Are are you saying I shouldn't drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, what about those who say, well, that's divine child abuse? Well, that would assume that Jesus doesn't agree with this plan. All along he's agreeing with the plan. Now he struggles in prayer to show that this is a real choice. But the reason he came was to die. In fact, in John, I don't know what, I think it's 12, 12. Oh, actually, I I cut out a verse. Um, In in, uh, John 12, Jesus actually says, No one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. I lay down my life. I am purposely drinking the cup of God's wrath. It's not divine child abuse. It's, it's God coming up with the plan to take away our sin, to forgive our sin, and appease his wrath toward our sin. The, the members of the Trinity are all in agreement on this plan. Okay. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And, and just right here, just think of this. God was arrested. <laughs> Sorry. God was arrested. How can that be? Right. Is, it, is it possible for the God who cannot be contained to be contained in ropes? Well, he was because he submitted to it. Right. Then what did they do? First, they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So why are they bringing him to Annas? Well, Annas, he's kind of like the godfather. And he was the high priest back in the year 6, from 6 to the year 15 AD. And then five of his sons were the high priest, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest, but he's really the godfather. So they bring him first to Annas, and then finally, they're going to bring him to Caiaphas, and John writes, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die, for the people, all right. So Caiaphas in John chapter 11, he's the high priest. And he's the one who calls for the hit on Jesus. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you, people of Israel that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And, and John is, is pointing out the double meaning here. Caiaphas meant it's better politically for one man to die Than for all of us to face the wrath of Rome, because he's gathering, Jesus is gathering a a crowd and he's a threat, and let's just get rid of him so we don't have to deal with Rome. What John is saying is, even though he meant politically it's better, what he really is communicating, it's better spiritually for one man to die rather than all of us face the wrath. Not of Rome, but of God. So as we segue into communion, as we drink the cup, let's remember that Jesus drank the cup of wrath. He shed his blood, and now when we drink the cup, we're reminded that we're covered by his blood. We do not need to fear the wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord, there's so much going on in this passage, but ultimately we see that you Didn't run. You purposely chose the garden. You submitted to arrest. You drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. So now, Lord, as we take communion, we ask uh, for each one to remember the great sacrifice that you have provided. Thank you, Lord, that you are our substitute. Thank you that you haven't left us to our own condemnation. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.